0: This is the Low Tox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 221, and I'm having back on the show the wonderful Dr. Alan Christensen today. Dr. C, uh, as known on his socials, and he is one of the most generous naturopathic physicians uh, online. He doesn't just write his books, treat patients in clinic, but he spends a lot of time educating the public with a ton of free resources, webinars, challenges, Q&A's so you can literally just jump on and ask Alan a question when he is in session online on Instagram and so if you haven't come across his work before I would definitely recommend you follow him. He is a thoroughly well-researched doctor and what I one of the aspects I especially love about uh, Alan and the way he works is he doesn't always take the common narrative of the alternative health uh, field if he feels that there isn't enough research or that there's differing or competing research that needs to be highlighted. Um, And I think that's really amazing in um, this day and age uh, where you tend to have, oh, you have to believe this or you have to believe that, you know, mainstream versus alternate. And I've always been a proponent for finding the overlaps, people playing to their own strengths, Uh, and really looking at the research uh, in the broadest way possible. And Alan actually talks us through the three fundamental uh, aspects to arriving at an actual truth uh, versus a um, uh, (laughs) mixed up, muddled up truth, as we sometimes see today. So I'm really excited to have Alan back, and we're talking about the thyroid specifically. Last time he was on the show, we talked about the metabolism and uh, some of the research he's found that arrived at his Metabolism Reset book a couple of years ago. And now he's just put out the Thyroid Reset book. And this is by no means a let's talk very vaguely uh, so that you have no choice other than to buy the book. Today, you're still going to get So much fantastic information. I made sure the questions do good digging for you. I know thyroid concerns affect many, many people in this and other communities. So please let your friends who have thyroid issues know that this show is on. I would be so grateful if you would share this on social media or even just email it to a friend or screen grab and text because what Alan talks about today is iodine. And what is often not talked about in our supplement happy world is the upper limit of certain nutrients uh, rather than um, just talking about the deficiency uh, level. And that's key with iodine because the upper limit and the lower limit is quite a small window compared to a lot of other nutrients out there. Uh, And minerals uh, in general are a bit of a balancing act. And uh, iodine is uh, an incredibly sensitive uh, nutrient in our bodies. We really need to find the Goldilocks scenario. So Alan is helping us get very much well underway with doing that today. And uh, I was very... Uh, I I, I learned a lot in reading this book. I read it at warp speed in two days because I'm shooting my next book at the moment, all the recipes and everything, and also uh, preparing to move, uh, which when this airs will be my moving day uh, in a few days. So uh, it's busy, but I could not put it down. It's so easy to read. I really love doctors who manage to write for people Uh, so that we feel empowered rather than, um, you know, confronted by how much we don't understand or don't know. You really feel like there are many actionable steps you can take when you read Alan's work. So I'm going to hook into that episode in a little minute. But I am so excited to bring you this month's uh, sponsor for the show. Uh, We have a special low-tox swap every month for you guys, sometimes even two. And uh, that's just to help you with some of the bigger ticket items or to stock up on some of your favourites. And what I'm going to be doing this year is in the newsletter, I'm going to be letting you know what's coming up so that you can really start either saving for something, if you can see in a couple of months' time there's a bigger ticket item that takes a while to save for, or so that you can know that you're going to get a sweet deal around the corner and just hold off and stock up in a little bit. Uh, That was overwhelming feedback in our LOTOX club member survey last week and uh, I'm very excited to start doing that in the newsletter as well so the whole community knows what's coming up. But today and for the rest of February and one week into March we have the Complete Home Filtration guys joining us as our podcast sponsor. Now, this is unique to Australia, uh, unfortunately, but thank gosh there are a lot of Australians that listen to this show, about 45,000 of you a month, uh, I know from our analytics. And so for you guys, uh, you have 20% off full home filtration with complete home filtration for the month of February and the first week of March. So uh, that's not where this ends. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Complete Home Filtration and then a little more about the offer. So these guys are on a mission to help everybody enjoy the best-tasting, healthiest water from every tap in their home. And I know a lot of low-toxers have had their benchtop system for a while, but if you're a homeowner and you have the opportunity to go Complete Home Filtration, then this means – you don't end up with the prickly skin after the shower or the bath because of the chlorine. Uh, it means you can uh, bring in a reverse osmosis remineralization system into your kitchen specifically so that you have that extra level with your everyday drinking water. It means uh, you no longer have to worry about babies drinking bath water that might have E. coli in it uh, because it looks too convert every tap in your home no matter where you switch on a tap you have that wonderful filtered water everywhere Uh, we all know the amount of uh, modern dodgies that it can be in our water uh, regardless of all the public health measures that are taken, we still end up with pesticide and herbicide residues in our water. We still end up with uh, bacteria that fall through the cracks. And, of course, if you're concerned about fluoride and you've talked to your physician about that particular element um, that is found in a lot of drinking waters around the world... Uh, some countries do, some countries don't, uh, then you have that element that can be removed as well to a very high percentage through the reverse osmosis system. So um, it's very, very exciting, and uh, I urge you to go and have a look at their website, uh, completehomefiltration.com.au. They actually can come out and do water tests in WA, New South Wales and Queensland to the greater metro areas, but... If you're in Victoria or South Australia, Northern Territory, Tasmania, it doesn't mean you can't make the most of this offer. It just means that your local plumber who knows how to install home filtration systems will be the person that you get to actually install the unit. But the guys that complete home filtration, give them a buzz. They will be able to talk you through your options. Uh, And a big reminder that you have 20% off the home system Plus, for us, they're throwing in um, a free set of filters, so you don't have to buy your first refill filter, Uh, and that's worth $199 for the whole home system and $300 for the premium system, which includes that reverse osmosis uh, remineralisation for the kitchen. So uh, the water test is available where they come out and test your water in WA, New South Wales and Queensland, but... Remember, everyone in Australia can make the most of this offer. So go get in touch with them, completehomefiltration.com.au. You don't need a special code or anything. You just mention LOTOX Life when you give them a buzz and you organise uh, your um, filtration unit. I'm excited. I have wanted to do this for so long for the community. And I know a lot of you guys have been waiting for this. So enjoy, make the most of it. And I can't wait to hear your feedback. So that's it from the sponsor offer. I want to welcome all the Low Tox Club members who've joined us in the last week and loving all the answers to our Low Tox Club member survey. Uh, Any new members that join us uh, in the next couple of months will also get the opportunity to do that survey because we have big plans for the club this year. We're welcoming new experts uh, we are holding Q&A sessions. Actually, I'm booking Alan in for a follow-up thyroid Q&A session for the Low Club. It's $49 bucks Australian a year to join. Uh, I make it cheap because I want everybody in there creating community, keeping the trolls out by having that small paywall and us producing great monthly content just for you guys and, uh, uh, you know, that little extra level of uh, bringing your Low life to life. Uh, so I'm really, really looking forward to seeing more of you guys in there. All you have to do is head to lowtoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and join the Lotox Club is your very first option on our homepage. So there we go. That's it from me. Uh, enjoy this conversation, well, interview rather. I am very much a novice when it comes to uh, thyroid physiology and I learnt tons and I know you guys will too. Look forward to chatting online about how you went after listening to the show. Hello, Alan. How are you?
1: Hey, Alex. I'm doing really well. Thank you.
0: I'm so glad to have you back. Uh, So many people really, really loved our metabolism podcast last year. There were things that many people learned that they weren't across. And what was especially exciting to me at the time was I knew you were writing this book, which I'm interested in on a very personal level for my health. But I know from running a big community for uh, over a decade now, so many people are still confused, still feeling like they're not getting the treatment that they need when it comes to thyroid health. And that is what your new book is. And I wanted to say it's like deciding to write a book is like, deciding to have a baby, you know, it's you, especially when you've done it before, right? It is a big, long labor of love and you better be really into the idea to see it through. So I want to ask you why the thyroid as a clinician, as a doctor for, who's been practicing for many years now, what is it about the thyroid that you see it being significant enough to really put a ton of research and your time into to help people?
1: yeah yeah good question. you know I've, I've treated thyroid disease clinically for 25 years but I, and I had written books about it in the past, but it's really the new research. It's the data behind this book that I, I saw how powerful it was and what a difference it could make and I realized that no one was going to champion this otherwise. This wasn't being given the attention that it deserved so I had to <laughs> I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't not write it
0: <laughs> yeah uh, absolutely and um, I'm, I'm so excited to get stuck into it so something that really confronted me as I read the book was this crazy fact. So 7% of people are happy with their thyroid treatment as it stands. 7%. 71% changed doctors multiple times to see if things might get better with a new practitioner. And then over 80% wished that there were new treatment options for them to try when it came to their thyroid. What we're doing is not working.
1: Well, and check this out. So that survey that was that was an elective survey done by those who frequent the what the main national organization for thyroid disease. These are they, this were, these this was not reached out to people. These are those that are already interested and following a very conventional path, and often you know involved with their care in some way. So it was, if anything, it was a group that should have been doing better. And yeah, the results were just horrible. It was just terrible to see
0: crazy isn't it and uh, your striped line of the book is reverse hypothyroidism and Hashimoto symptoms with a proven iodine balancing plan yeah. so uh talk about go big or go home <laughs> like reverse <laughs> is a very strong word like you're very literally saying word. we can fix this completely like as in uh move beyond having this condition yeah. um what have you done to prove this in your own clinical work? Because I know before you write a book, you're not just grabbing research. You are working with patients and making sure everything is 100% uh, provable.
1: Yeah. You know, I saw basically when we think about something being proven, we think about a convergence of three big lines of evidence. You know, we need to have some, some way by which it's plausible. And that by itself is not proof, but it, it needs to be there. If it's not there, you got a problem. So there's got to be some plausible way something could happen. And then you have to have some proof in population studies, you know, epidemiologic, module, epidemiologic models. And again, not proof by themselves, but one more piece of the puzzle. And then finally, you need interventional trials. You've got to see that people in real-world conditions, when compared against similar groups that didn't do this thing, actually saw that result. So I saw that confluence of evidence, and we'll talk more about that as we go. And I started to encourage patients of ours to follow these pro- these practices. And we saw firsthand that the, the data from the clinical trials would bear out, that there's a high
0: percent of people that their disease can reverse. Yeah, incredible. Um, and, and so I think often where people get a bit stuck is especially if they haven't been open to naturopathic models uh, or seen integrative nutritionists or functional medicine doctors, uh, we just go to the doctor, we get our blood tests, and we're told, no, it's definitely not your thyroid, it's fine. But once you actually do start to educate yourself beyond just getting the simple, which we know to be the TSH test, Uh, There is a lot more complexity that we can dig into to maybe uncover issues down the line Um, and I think it'd be really useful just in case this is someone's first day of being curious to do a bit of a 101 on the thyroid on um, what is important to test. Uh, And how one gets access to that testing, uh, at least in the US, because I know you can speak from that perspective, and I know how to help the Aussies. Um, But yeah, I think it'd be a really great thing to just do that so that everybody's on board with the more complex stuff we're going to dig into.
1: So yeah, we got a little thing that sits about where a bow tie would sit. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Not not actual size, nor actual color or texture. I love it. This is my happy little thyroid. Mm -hmm. So something like that, and it's sitting below the skin. It controls three big things in the body. You know, how quickly we turn food into energy, how well we carry nerve signals from our brain throughout the rest of our body. And then also how well we repair our connective tissues, you know, skin, tendons, ligaments, those sorts of things. And it it can slow down. You know, a lot of things regulate it and a lot of ways we regulate what comes out of it but it can go wrong. We'll talk more about that. So when someone suspects they have that because they their, their weight just won't budge or they gain weight for no reason, or they get this new brain fog, they can't think, they can't remember, they're wiped out, they're depressed for no reason, their hair is thinning, you know, digestive symptoms. When someone suspects that, then the, a good step is to see if that's a culprit or if it's something else. And a, a good process for that is by testing. So. The first thing we think about is how the brain is responding to the thyroid. And to be really precise, the pituitary gland is controlled by the hypothalamus and the pituitary is the thyroid's boss. So if Mm. the thyroid is lazy, the pituitary yells at it. And we (laughs) call the thyroid stimulating hormone, it's stimulating. Mm -hmm. And so this is a backward marker. So the lazier your thyroid is, the more loudly it gets yelled at. So the number goes higher when you're underactive, Mm. And vice versa, if there's too much hormone, your body quits asking your thyroid to work and the number goes low.
0: Then we measure. So kind of like adrenals and cortisol, very similar, like go, 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 go. And then sometimes it just gives out. And then it's like, well, there's nothing I can do to help you here.
1: Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. And then we measure what comes out of the thyroid and the two main hormones there are T3 and T4. There's actually a lot of other important hormones, but those are the two that are on blood tests. And the three and the four is just how many iodine atoms there are attached to a protein called thyroglobulin. So T3, T4. And we also measure the antibodies. So most people, when it slows down, it's because the immune system is attacking it. So we measure antibodies that attack key thyroid proteins like thyroglobulin and also an enzyme called thyroid peroxidase. And the thyroid... The thyroglobulin is the template on which these iodine atoms are attached. And when you've got about 11 to 13 iodine atoms on the thyroglobulin, everything's good. You know it comes out, it makes the hormones and things work well. But when there's too much iodine in the thyroid, there can be as many as 60, 60 iodine atoms attached to that molecule. The extra iodine damages the molecule and it hurts the thyroid cells. And it can also affect that enzyme because that enzyme we talked about, it's activating iodine. So all these things get attacked, and that's how the whole autoimmune disease starts. Now, you talked about measuring it. So what's happened is that we've got normal ranges. We've taken a lot of numbers from people who have had thyroid blood tests and we've put them on a bell curve distribution. And you can see like you're high or you're low here. The tough part about that is a lot of those numbers, most of those numbers come from people that have thyroid disease or thyroid symptoms. So they're heavily weighted towards a biased audience. So studies have been done that have looked at people that are really free of thyroid symptoms and free of thyroid disease and have no real issues that should be skewing their thyroid. And when they're averaged, we see something different than the normal range. And the biggest difference comes up in the TSH. So remember, it's backward, and normal ranges for labs, most countries now are about 0.4 on the low end to 4.5, maybe 5 on the high end. But healthy people never have TSH, extremely rarely have TSH scores greater than 2. So they're usually in the low end of the normal range. Now, funny thing, but healthy people also have low normal T4 levels. That's pretty, pretty typical. And then healthy people have a large distribution of T3 levels. They can be all over the range and be pretty good. So yeah, that's how, like what we call optimal ranges differ from normal ones.
0: Got you. And and so if someone's T3 is uh, lower than their T4, like quite a bit lower, that is cause for concern? Um, not in my book, really. Okay, no. interesting. Oh, I'm and excited so, to explore this.
1: Well, so what's happened is there's a couple of ways you can think about that. You can think about it. What many have done is said, okay, if TSH runs low, Then the free hormones should both be high and that's that's like a simple algorithm almost and it seems plausible but the difficulty is that our body works really hard to regulate the free hormones even if we've got more or less than we need we're going to push them around to get them into a state that we want them so they're they're the last thing to change so if someone someone for example if you take too much thyroid the first thing that'll happen is your tsh will creep down your free hormones, they won't budge. In fact, they might even get low because your body's pushing them out quicker. Finally, if you take more and more and more and more and more, and you go to like 10 times what you should have, then they will go high. But that's
0: the very last thing to happen. Got you. And, and what about reverse T3? That's something that a lot of uh, functional medicine doctors also check. Um, can you talk us through the significance of that one?
1: Yeah, so it's a funny thing. It's the normal byproduct of thyroid hormone. We we have like, you know, I've got two kidneys, I could get by on one, you know. So normally we make more than we need and most of it's waste. We've recently learned that reverse T3 is actually important onto itself. It's critical for brain cell repair. Our brain makes a lot of reverse T3 on purpose. It's a it's an important hormone.
0: And oh, <laughs> I'm I'm interested in that because. Uh, as someone recovering from mold illness, your brain gets quite, my brain got significantly damaged, a lot of nerve damage as well. And um, my teeth, my reverse T3 tends high, not crazy high, but in what you're saying there, perhaps that's actually my brain, my body getting to work at repairing my brain.
1: Well, and that's the general idea about almost all things reverse T3 is that when it is higher. It's, it's not a mistake. It's on purpose. So, there's a thing called euthyroid 6 syndrome, which is also called non-thyroidal illness. And it's basically a condition to where someone's ill in some way other than thyroid disease and their thyroid hormones juggle to accommodate that. So, you know, if your car is sputtering and the engine light is flashing on, you're not going to drive it hard. You're going to like baby it to the garage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's what it does when you're sick is you yeah. use thyroid hormones to slow your metabolic rate. Mm-hmm. You intake. Make more reverse T3 because you're trying not to push yourself very hard. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's protective in a way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The other scenario is that people who are taking more thyroid hormone than they need, they typically will have higher levels of reverse T3. And that's Mm. the same thing. The body is intentionally trying to defuse the extra hormone.
0: Right. And a lot of forums and you see a lot of Facebook groups and people chatting, a lot of people take natural desiccated thyroid. What is your take on on that?
1: Yeah, so thyroid hormones, this is kind of funny because this is inconsistent nomenclature between thyroid hormones and then the hormones used for hormone replacement therapy. So talking like estrogen, progesterone, when we say a natural hormone, natural doesn't mean it was plucked from a bush. It means that it's chemically identical to what the ovaries would have made. But in the thyroid world, now we don't use that system. What we call synthetic uh, is, is actually a hormone that's synthesized. Natural estrogen is synthesized, right? But it's bioidentical. So synthetic high thyroid hormones, they're synthesized. They're bioidentical. So they should be called natural by that definition. Yes. So we've got, we've got isolated hormones. We've got isolated bioidentical versions of T4 and T3. And then we do have desiccated thyroid. And that one almost is plucked from a bush, or I guess plucked from a pig is more accurate. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's pig porcine-based thyroid. And you know there's a lot of folks that can take common synthetic T4 and do great from it, but they're not going to go out of their way to you know, read my books or come to your podcast because they're, they're doing fine. They're doing other things. So of those who don't do well on conventional therapy, clinically, I've seen that a very high percent can do much better on natural desiccated thyroid. And studies have borne that out. And part of it is that there's this spectrum of hormones. So T4 and T3, there are isolates available of both of those, but there's also T2 and there's also TRIAC and there's also about 10 other biologically active thyroid amines. And these things we cannot measure. They don't have effects upon the TSH. So when they're lacking, you don't see that they're lacking, but they're part of what would be there if we were doing this well on our own. So those are some possible reasons why natural thyroid can work better for people.
0: Mm, wow. Um, that's, uh, that's fantastic to know. And I think something that a lot of people don't clock is it often doesn't come down to uh, medication and balancing. There's also the environmental factors that can disrupt our thyroids. What do you think in the research jumps out as some of the biggest environmental factors that we can look out for?
1: Well, so this has been talked about directly. That exact question has been asked in studies. And, And yeah, you're exactly right. So what happens there is there's how much hormone is available for your body and then how well your body can make use of that hormone. And in theory, someone that doesn't have a thyroid, but takes a medication should be just like anyone else. But like the survey you mentioned, most folks on treatment, they're not doing better. And yet on paper, the hormone should be available. You know, it should be there for them. So this comes down to this, tissue resistance, this, this peripheral metabolism of thyroid hormones, and much of this can relate to various stressors. Now, there was a paper on this very topic done a couple of years ago, and it was a synopsis of pretty much all we know up to date. And what the paper argued was that uh, the biggest, there's, there's several known contributors, and of those, the most prominent was iodine. And the conclusion of the paper was that iodine was not the, mo- not, not the only thing that mattered. But it mattered more than all the other things combined.
0: <laughs> wow. That's huge. Yeah. Huge. So, yeah. So,
1: iodine, when there's too much, it makes our body resist thyroid hormones. If we didn't do that, we would just make extra and take it in willy nilly and we would harm ourselves. We would overstimulate our bodies and damage our heart. So, iodine can make us not only make less hormone, but resist the hormone that's there.
0: Incredible. Uh, and, And so before we hook into speaking specifically about iodine, because I really want to spend a lot of time on that, uh, can we talk just about the main reasons people aren't doing well, what those labels are, so Hashimoto's, hypo or hyperthyroidism, uh, and then hook into uh, the fix? For sure.
1: So the the whole categorization, we've got diseases of structure, And diseases of function and then diseases of inflammation. So diseases of structure, there's a problem with how the thyroid is just built. Uh, The most dramatic example there could be thyroid cancer, to where cells are made in a way that they're not really listening to messages properly. You know, normally cells have this thing called apoptosis, which means just intentional death. And a group of cells collectively figures out, oh, we need some new members, that's enough, we need to get rid of some old members, we gotta keep this steady balance, right? So cancer cells don't do that. They grow past They, they grow past their welcome, you know? And that can occur within the thyroid. Then other structural issues, we can have more even enlargement, we call that goiter. We can have uh, uneven enlargement, like nodules or toxic nodules. And then we can also have calcifications that show up. So those are the main structural problems. Now, functional issues, we can have too much or too little hormone. We call that hyper, like hyperactive, so hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. And I'll come back more to those. So inflammatory conditions, we've got various things that involve inflammation of the thyroid. The most common ones are autoimmune. And so you mentioned Hashimoto's, that's an autoimmune inflammatory state that generally leads one toward hypothyroidism. It generally breaks down the thyroid. Then we have Graves disease. Funny thing is it's almost the same disease as Hashimoto's, but rather inflaming inside the thyroid, it inflames parts on the outside. So kind of like you got a short circuit on a doorbell, you know, the thyroid thinks that TSH is there. It thinks it's being stimulated, but it's not. So the inflammation makes it overwork, but yeah, it's very similar to Hashimoto's. We've got a few other things like sub acute thyroiditis. That's been more in the news during the COVID era because that's that's caused by acute viral illnesses. So sometimes when you're sick and sore, your thyroid itself gets sore and it swells and puts out wrong amounts of hormone. But yeah, that's, those are the main inflammatory conditions
0: brilliantly explained thank you uh, and so to come back to iodine now because it's a very juicy topic and it's one you focus on uh, as the main uh uh star to kind of unpack and i by by star i mean um feature rather than uh you know being awesome um so so much discourse that I have borne witness to over the past decade, being curious about these topics uh, and looking into thyroid health on behalf of my community, you see iodine come up. You've got to take more iodine. You've got to rub more iodine on your wrist. And if it disappears, then you need more. And um, where, where did that messaging come from? And why do we maybe need to rethink the iodine cheerleader squad as a, as a bog standard way of if something's wrong with your fire, I'd bring out the iodine cheerleader. The
1: iodine cheerleading squad. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I've heard them called the iodophiles or the iodine extremists, but cheerleading squad is nice.
0: <laughs> I tend to go for the happier <laughs> Yeah, that's
1: a, that's a gentler label. <laughs> Well, so yeah, iodine has been, it's the most studied research on the planet with the closest contenders are not even close. We've, we've been studying it for well over a hundred years. We've got massive amounts of data. We've looked at how its changes have played out in populations thousands of times with fortification. And yeah, we've got a lot of knowledge around that. Uh, in 1998, uh, a, a deersweet man, I, I spoke to him a lot. I read all of his work. I connected with him. He was a gynecologist, and he read papers showing that high-dose iodine could lower symptoms of fibrocystic breast disease. And he wanted to help his patients, so he made this available as a therapy. And not having a strong background in nutrition, he thought that perhaps it helped because they were iodine deficient. Now, it's easy to think that way. So nutrients can work like drugs, and they can work like nutrients. You know, an example is niacin, it's a B vitamin. And if we lack it, we have various health problems, um, pellagra, but it happens as a drug in massive amounts to block an enzyme that makes cholesterol. So there's medical uses of niacin. Niacin is a cholesterol lowering drug. It doesn't mean that high cholesterol is a niacin deficiency, right? Those are two totally separate ideas. But yeah, this person didn't have a strong nutritional background. So we thought that it was an iodine deficiency that was causing their symptoms. And we've learned since then that breast tissue contains the same iodine pump that the thyroid contains. So there's a special pump called the NIS, the sodium iodide disimporter, that pulls iodine in the thyroid. Now, normally when women have healthy breast tissue and they're not lactating, they don't really pump any iodine in. When they are lactating, they pump some in, so there's some there for the breast milk, all good. Some women have a really active pump when they shouldn't. And the two consequences of that are fibrocystic breast disease, now called fibroadenomatous breast disease, and breast cancer. There's a whole continuum of normal, lactating, fibrocystic cancerous, as far as how aggressively they pump in iodine. And so when you flood the body with iodine, the pump shuts off for a little while, so we now know that a high dose of iodine, yeah, it shuts off the pump and it takes the pressure down and it alleviates some of the pressure symptoms. However, it raises the risk for cancer over time. That's the drawback. So the person, though, thinking that these women needed much higher doses of iodine than we had ever thought before, he made a lot of a lot of convoluted theories. And honestly, he was a brilliant man. He's he's since passed, and his theories. If you didn't look outside of them, they were very internally consistent, they seemed very plausible, and he influenced others in them. Um, Again, I was sympathetic to his work, I was curious about it, but I also looked at the rest of the world's literature on iodine, and I saw a lot of ways in which they just did not line up. Mm -hmm.
0: And And, just while I think about it, iodine, is that used in contrast dyes for mm -hmm. um, imaging? Less and less. There's countless examples of things
1: that it's been useful for. It's a great antiseptic. It's a great preservative. It makes lotions smooth and creamy. It's, it does a lot of helpful things. However, over the years, medicine has found just how toxic it can be for some people. And they keep, keep winnowing down its uses when they can find something safer to use for that same purpose.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. And, um, what does iodine overload look like like what are we looking for in in that picture
1: yeah so the terms that are used are toxicology and excess and toxicology is something that's really not a plausible thing for most people there are some medicines that have amounts that are so high sadly there are some popular supplements that are in this range but i talked about that pump so the body puts it where you want it like you want to make it when you're lactating you want some in your thyroid When you're at a state of iodine toxicology, your kidneys can't clear it fast enough. And those same high concentrations start to show up all throughout your body. And it shuts down your organs. And if you've ever seen an old medicine bottle that has the skull and crossbones on that, sadly iodine was a popular means of suicide back in the day. So you consume a bottle of that, your organs fail. Most people were lucky enough to have vomiting or diarrhea, but if you weren't, yeah, it was, it's, it's, universally fatal. So that's the toxicology. So that's a little unusual. What we're more so talking about here is iodine excess. And that's basically, there's more coming in than your thyroid can deal well with. Your thyroid only gets rid of iodine by making thyroid hormone, and you can only make so much before it hurts you. So if there's too much going on for a long time, your thyroid is struggling with that contradiction.
0: Mm-hmm. But iodine deficiency is also a thing though, right? It was. So yeah, in Mm -hmm.
1: 1992, 112 nations were categorized as severely iodine deficient. By 2014, there were zero nations categorized as severely iodine deficient. Uh, There are seven nations as of late that are categorized as mildly iodine deficient, but those are winding down pretty quickly still. But yeah, severe iodine deficiency and moderate iodine deficiency our historical elements. It was a great win by public health.
0: Amazing. And what did that look like? What was implemented to correct those deficiencies?
1: Yeah, the global iodine networks, they put around iodine fortification in various programs. Most were salt-based. Some were done by just annual injection, believe it or not, in very remote places. But places that had severe deficiency, it mostly strikes the young. And the most common problem is pediatric goiter or neck enlargement. Historically, and this, none of this has happened since 1992, the most recent one was a province of China. Before then, the most recent was 1960 in Papua New Guinea. But in those cases where it was severely low, there could also be birth defects. And that was called cretinism or congenital hypothyroidism. Now, sadly, the only cases of congenital hypothyroidism come from pregnant women taking over-the-counter iodine supplements. So a paradox is that lots of iodine does the same thing that no iodine
0: does. Mm, I remember we touched on this briefly as a bit of a preview into what you were writing about in our last uh, interview. And so how on earth do we get the balance right? Like if I go and my doctor says, can you do a P test uh, on iodine in your next round of um, tests? Uh, And it comes back a bit low, does that mean one is low or, uh, you know, how are you for anyone who's listening to this rather than watching this is Alan is shaking his head quite vigorously right I'm not shaking right it now. loudly enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, how do we get at an actual picture of what our personal iodine levels are and whether there's something we need to balance in the first place?
1: Well, the cool thing is that in the modern world, we no longer see iodine deficiency. It's in really all foods. Uh, some foods have a lot more than others. We'll talk about that. But if one has a diet with a variety of foods, one won't be deficient. And even pregnancy now, there's data arguing that supplementation is less productive. It's better better to be avoided. So iodine testing, um, I mentioned a, just a minute ago about like toxicology where the kidneys can't clear it. That's when iodine changes in the bloodstream. Uh, iodine in your blood, short of that, has no no relevance in terms of iodine nutritional status. It can be Low or wherever. If it's very high, you're toxic, but everywhere not really high doesn't mean anything. So, iodine in the urine is a very good test for iodine in a population, so 500 people or more. Uh, There's a lot of ways by which one sample can be randomly different from another. And at a population level, that doesn't matter, but at an individual level, it does. 24 hour urine tests are better. However, the last papers have shown that. You have to do—I'm not making this up—324-hour uh, samples, repeat samples to be within 90% accuracy for a person. So, oh my! So God. Now till November to catch all your pee. <laughs>
0: yeah! Wow! Geez! And is it the so, same? Is that just to come back to blood tests for general thyroid um, check? TSH, um, T3, T4, RT3 uh, is. Is that the same case? Like is there um, inaccuracy in that testing and is there a better way to get accuracy there?
1: Uh, blood tests are best in that regard because really thyroid hormones, they're actively circulating in the blood. Iodine, it's, a trace is always in the blood or often in the blood, but its main place where it's active is in the, in the thyroid. So the urine is just what we're getting rid of. The thyroid is active. The blood is just what's in circulation. So the question is, if iodine regulation will help someone. And the studies that showed that lowering iodine helped, they all, they showed that when they did try to measure people's iodine before going into it, it didn't predict who got better and who did not. But those that didn't get better, then there are ways you can measure to see if they were simply not yet finished with a detox, or maybe they were missing some sources of iodine. So before trying, there's no testing that's helpful, if you try and it doesn't work, there are some options that way. And I'm happy to go into that if that's helpful.
0: Mm. And by saying they were missing some uh, iodine um, that they were taking, like they were missing some um, intake, does that mean uh, in terms of like uh, what you were eating and personal care products?
1: Yeah, there's just some source. So what can happen is that it, it can take like a, a bunch of iodine, a bolus dose to overload the thyroid, But it takes only a tiny, normal amounts can keep you from getting rid of that. So you don't have to take in a lot to keep it stuck there. And if someone had quite a bit built up, they might take three or six months to get all the extra down. So some people who are three months into it and not yet progressing, they might still be eliminating a lot of item because they just have a lot. Or it could be that, yeah, there are some sources coming in they've not yet identified.
0: Mm. And... (laughs) So how do we start to, uh, like, if testing is so wildly inaccurate and almost impossible to get an accurate picture, how do we know what level is healthy in the first place? How do they decide that?
1: We've seen this from population evaluations. So so same thing, You, you can do that well at a population level. And what we've learned is that the iodine requirements they don't vary really much at all from person to person apart from by body weight, you know, just body size. There's not a lot of difference in that. However, iodine tolerance, that's where there's a lot of variance. And so we've looked at populations that are fortified with iodine and seen how thyroid disease plays out and not everyone gets it. You know, a lot of people can clear the extra and do totally fine with that, but they prone to thyroid disease they're the ones that have this lower upper limit. They just can't tolerate the excess as well as someone else might. Mm-hmm. And in okay. terms of knowing where you are in that continuum, if you don't have thyroid disease, you've never been prone to it, you're probably not in that continuum. You could still be wise to not do crazy doses of iodine. If you have thyroid disease, you're in that continuum. It's mm-hmm. quite that simple.
0: Right, got you. And so you know, it, it must break your heart to see people who don't even have a medical degree or a naturopathic uh, diploma recommending huge amounts of iodine to people. Um, I've seen it done so many times before. I I tend to be more cautious and and wait to speak to someone such as yourself before making my decisions. Um, how, How did we get to a place where we started to, like, what is the promise of iodine that was born obviously somewhere that has so many people talking about, oh, that's what you need. And, um, and getting a bottle of, I think it's Lugol's, isn't it? The one that you paint on your wrist. Can we talk about that? Because I think we need to dispel some confusion and myths there potentially. Yeah, let's do it. So that
1: the quick ones are the skin test. That's another test that's talked about. And, you know, and to your point too, there's a lot of things that that sound plausible. Yes, exactly.
0: But that's not a valid test for truth. you know. <laughs> I mean, are we not living in a time like that right now <laughs> on a number of levels?
1: Yeah. So so the skin test. So yeah, the story is iodine, like Lugal solution you mentioned, or betadine, it does discolor your skin and it does go away after a while. And a long time ago, actually in the 1920s, people wondered if it went away quicker when you needed it. And it stayed on longer when you did not need it. And it's plausible. So 1932, there was a very large study done and they took people that did have thyroid disease were known to be low in iodine. They took healthy people. So we got two groups. They took dead people. They took cadaver skin. (laughs) They painted on a whole lot of iodine. They clicked their stopwatches, you know, they measured it all. completely random there's no correlation whatsoever from any of those groups whether you're alive or dead or good third function or not 1932 it was debunked and it's still going around like it's a hot fresh idea
0: still going around and it's from a time to your earlier point where there were iodine deficiencies and it was known yes that we needed to correct that for populations you
1: absorb some across our skin and Mm -hmm. you can talk about that that's that's why it can be an issue for personal care products. So it can come into our bloodstream. Mm. And there are ways, for example, like iron, our body has uh, various binding proteins that select how much iron we need, conditional upon how much iron we have. Mm -hmm. If we're lower in it, we suck in more. If we have more of it, we try to take in less. So we do stuff like that in our gut. We don't do stuff like that in our skin. We've got nothing like that on our skin.
0: No, and, you know, knowing a fair bit about skin coming from uh, the beauty industry as my first career, uh, you learn about um, a lack of hydration that is water-based or oil-based. So based on that theory alone, if you had dehydration that was water-based dehydration in your skin, anything you put on your skin would soak in faster.
1: Mmm. That's interesting. It's got nothing well, to do
0: also, with iodine or... Yeah. Well, and also,
1: as far as the color change, that, a lot of that is not even soaking in. That's just mm. iodide converting yes. to iodine by exposure mm. to oxygen. It just turns invisible when it's mm. exposed to the air.
0: Yeah. Okay, debunked and we can move on. (laughs) (laughs) So I was reading in your book about uh, World Health Organization recommendations and um, I know that's a touchy subject for people, the WHO these days, but I think where it comes to iodine, I actually really like how they have the table and there's lower ends and upper ends. It seems like, especially what you've been writing about in the book, um, Thyroid Reset Diet, there's a Goldilocks moment with iodine, but everything you've talked about so far kind of leads me to think that we, we often have to do this a little bit by feel and just starting to become more aware of where iodine is and, and start to correct through a greater understanding of those healthy limits. And um, yeah, yeah
1: it, it, this is unlike other nutrients. You know, mm-hmm. Most of the ones that Goldilocks zone is much larger. You know, we, Yes. needs vitamin C. It's easy to not get scurvy. I've heard numbers that adults can get by on as few as 10, 20 milligrams. And I'm not saying that's optimal, but as far as not getting scurvy, that might be all that it takes. However, most could safely consume a hundred or a thousand times that and you know, not have big issues, mm-hmm. but iodine, it's narrower for some people. So yeah, the World Health Organization has said that the sweet spot for most is going to be about like 50 to 100 micrograms.
0: Mm-hmm. That's quite low. I said if 50, you to, start, 50
1: to 200, I meant to say. I didn't, okay, 50 I say to 200. I meant to say 200. Yeah, no, 50, you said
0: 100, 200. so that's okay, good. Okay, that was
1: wrong. Strike that. 50 so 50 to 200. to 200. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Still low. If you start to look at the tables you've put in your book and what um, when you start to identify how much iodine per serve is in certain foods,
1: yeah. um,
0: we, we get there pretty fast.
1: Yeah. And then that's changed and that's changed in lockstep with the increased rate of thyroid disease over the last several decades.
0: Interesting. Uh, Talk to me about processed food and iodine. So some things um, have iodine added. There's a lot of processed food companies that think, oh, well, if we just put all the synthetic uh, and uh, vitamins and minerals in there, then um, people will think it's healthier. And unfortunately people do. Uh, is iodine a big problem in processed foods?
1: It is. And not, not as much. They, they have used it in various ways. It is fortified in salt. In other contexts, it's not so much fortified. It's more so just a convenience factor in Mm -hmm. terms of helping the texture or the flavor or the shelf life or whatnot. Like
0: carrageenan Um, and those sorts of sea vegetable additives. That's
1: exactly why carrageenan has been a popular Mm. additive for a lot of things, Mm. uh, So what's happened there, the biggest categories that are relevant are baked goods, commercially baked goods, not homemade stuff, but commercially baked goods and dairy products. So dairy products, a little quicker there, iodine has been used as a teat sanitizer and it comes in the milk. It's also added to the cow's feed. And then also fish meal has been a popular, cheap source of protein for cattle. So those three reasons, milk has a lot more iodine than it has
0: before. Oh, my gosh. I'm just going to interrupt you there for a second because yeah, yeah. I'm very interested in climate change and food and our food system. And uh, one of the things that scientists are trying to do is cut methane levels in cows, uh, which um, is uh, debatable after my research as to whether that needs to happen because it's actually part of a natural cycle, that methane, rather than a synthetic artificial excess. Um But one of the things that they have proven uh, lowers methane levels in cow farts is sea vegetables. And, yes, and so how interesting it would be if one of our primary sources of all of our B vitamins starts being pumped with sea vegetables to so-called fix the methane problem, uh, we may end up with an excess of iodine through red meat intake. I'm not saying that's happening now, folks. I'm just saying this is a conversation happening now in science uh, that coupled with what you have found uh, to be excess um, iodine in the food supply uh, well, could be I'm a really interesting about, thing to look I'm at. just think
1: about the chemistry. I would assume it's the sodium alginate that's relevant. And for whatever reason, iodine doesn't tend to accumulate in muscle tissue. So even in those cases, there's not as much change that's in the, animal, the, 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 the beef per se, even when there is a lot of change of it in the dairy.
0: Mm, absolutely. And I guess you would have to look more at offal as the place that it might collect rather than the muscle meats that people eat.
1: Yeah. That's a slightly higher source, but it's mm. still not, not even in the ballpark
0: of, of dairy. Okay. Great. Good. Interesting though. Just got so, me yeah, thinking. Then,
1: then like baked stuff. So, so dairy and baked stuff, uh, one large survey looked at 25 of the top iodine sources in the American diet mm-hmm. and of the top 25, 23 of them have doubled or tripled in the last couple of decades. And it's mostly breads and dairies. And commercial breads, this is bizarre. So you'll sometimes see iodized dough conditioners, at least in the States, you might see that in the labels. However, that's not a safe indicator. If you don't see that, that doesn't mean that it's lower in iodine. So there's iodine in ways that does not reflect the ingredient lists.
0: Mm. So processed
1: foods can have a lot of things that are
0: not even what's listed. That's incredible. And I was shocked to see your research on supplements as well, uh, how the iodine levels are not necessarily what is stated on the bottle.
1: Never what they're stated on the
0: bottle. Literally never.
1: Okay. <laughs> Literally never, never what they're stated on the bottle. Oh my goodness. <laughs> not even in the ballpark. <laughs> mm. Sometimes four times higher.
0: Would you say iodine supplementation uh, for most people is just completely not necessary and we should just look at our dietary assessment when we're thinking about iodine levels.
1: You know, I used to I used to hedge that for pregnant populations. The Cochrane Review Group is an organization that's pretty well respected for doing non-biased reviews of big medical questions. You know, they they crunch massive amounts of data sets and pull them together. They did a big review on iodine supplementation during pregnancy a couple of years ago. And what they showed was that There were many times in the past where it was a phenomenal thing that had huge benefits of preventing problems. However, at present, and that was all prior to 1992, at present iodine supplementation during pregnancy, it does raise mom's thyroid peroxidase antibodies. It does worsen morning sickness for many mothers. It does not improve mom's overall health. It does not improve mom's thyroid health. It doesn't improve baby's overall health and it doesn't improve baby's thyroid health. Mm
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) That's that then. Um, uh, So can you get, um, I wanted to ask um, about some of the iodine sabotages in personal care, you mentioned, which is really handy in the book, you have literally all the ingredients that could be code names for uh, iodine based um, ingredients, which is so handy. I remember when Uh, I was diagnosed with a gluten um, non-celiac sensitivity uh, 17 years ago and it changed my life. But one of the things I had to do was read food labels for the first time uh, and reading the code names for the gluten-containing additives was like having to have a chemistry, a food chemistry degree Uh, And uh, I just love that you've made that so simple for people to be able to identify and look at the back of their shampoo, look at the back of your moisturiser and say, oh, okay, that's another source of iodine I'm getting. Um, You've said that iodine comes through the skin. Uh, How much of it comes through the skin? Like when we see an ingredient like carrageenan on toothpaste, do we need to swap toothpastes straight away? Like, is, is that the kind of level of urgency you would like people to have?
1: You know, I spent some time with the numbers on this because it was something that was just no one had mentioned before. And the more I dug on that, the more I found that, that yeah, they did find that iodine in hand sanitizers was a problem. It was causing disease for healthcare workers. It's been banned from hand sanitizers. They just did that a couple of years ago. If they hadn't done that before the pandemic, I can't even imagine how many people would have been overloading on iodine with all the hand sanitizer use. But so then I thought through that and I thought about the amounts in personal care products. So the the concentration, the actual amounts of iodine in products is not that large. So the the PVP, one of the more common ingredients, that might make up half of, I'm sorry, half of a percent of a product or 3% of a product. PVP is about 12% iodine by weight. We absorb about four and a half percent iodine across our skin. So I ran the math on that, and a lot of things. When we're talking about the amount that we might ingest being under a few grams, it's probably not relevant. Okay. So so yeah, tooth tooth. Unless you're like eating half a tube, now we got problems. <laughs> <laughs> but but stuff like like mascara, for example, it could have a fair amount. But how much volume of mascara actually comes into your bloodstream? There's not that much you use. It's on your eyelashes and. So yeah, so hairspray. So a lot of things like that I didn't really stress about because their volumes are so small. But then on the other hand, I I went in the bathroom and did some pumping and got the gram scale. And you can easily use 20 or 30 grams of conditioner. And because we're going to convert to micrograms because that's where iodine is. And 20 or 30 grams, that's 20 million micrograms. So even even that, taking the 0.5%, down to twelve point eight percent, down to four point five percent. You've still got two, three thousand micrograms left. You're still, you know, ten times above the safe daily amount just from that one thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, if you're shampooing and conditioning your hair once a week, are we still worried? <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> a I speak for women thing. everywhere here, Alan. We want to know. Well, <laughs>
1: And this is something to where my, my thought process is, there's not large studies showing that people that use product X get thyroid disease or vice versa, that's not there. But there is data showing that the iodine level that groups have cannot be predicted just by dietary or supplemental intake. And we've got so much data about how iodine is metabolized and the concentrations and, and the skin sanitizers. So it's, and the FDA is currently evaluating its use in, in cosmetics and planning on respecting it soon. So we know that it, that it can happen. And we know that iodine, it can be harmful. That pulse doses, Uh, this is the bizarre thing. So too little is bad, too much is bad, but erratic amounts, even erratic amounts inside an acceptable range can be a strain for the body. So yeah, for those that, those that are not prone to thyroid disease or they're stable enough, I wouldn't worry about it. But if someone's got thyroid disease and they say, Hey, I want to do whatever it takes to get better from this. I wouldn't use that shampoo, you know, you probably know this better than I do, but I spent a little time when I wrote the book and I pulled up like top hundred brands for various product lines. And I just read a lot of labels. And the, the hunch that I got was about a quarter to a third of products had some iodine ingredients in them. So that, that was reassuring to me that someone would have plenty of options to, they may not be using any already. And if they were, they've got a lot of options they could switch to.
0: Mm, absolutely. And I would say a body lotion would be more important to consider a swap in than your shampoo conditioner, which you are literally rinsing well, right off.
1: Couldn't agree more. And I would think mm. that a conditioner could be more important than a shampoo. Mm. Leaving it on for longer, it's contacting yeah. your body more. But, but yeah, a body lotion is probably the most important single thing in terms of how much you apply and the fact that you leave it on.
0: Mm, absolutely. Interesting. And probably deodorant. So that's going into a, like a detoxification uh, um, uh, um, avenue for your body that could be a really interesting one to consider so I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into that for us low toxins and seeing where we can make some adjustments if necessary um, do you feel that the healthy population who isn't having any thyroid issues at all needs to make these adjustments
1: Well, you know, needs is a word that if we could have granular versions of that. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. If we could put it on a
0: grayscale. Yeah.
1: Well, the Mm. funny thing is that sometimes you don't know if you're prone to thyroid disease until you get thyroid disease. Yeah.
0: So it actually could be creeping up.
1: You know, I don't have thyroid disease. I've, I've, I've watched my levels. But nonetheless, I'm cautious of these things. You know, I just, I, I don't want to push anything over the edge if it's there. I, I wouldn't know that if I were prone to it, but it hadn't yet shown up, that I could push it over the edge. So I, wouldn't, I don't worry quite as much about what I call the yellow light, the kind of the in between things, but I certainly do avoid the, the red light, the high sources.
0: Yeah. And your traffic light system makes it so easy because you can just go, oh, okay, this is where I focus 80, 20. And uh, it it makes it a relaxing thing because I think a lot of change can be stressful when we don't yet have the literacy to make it feel like a comfortable experience, right?
1: Well, and the cool thing is just like I was saying about personal care products, the similar thing is true for foods in that there's, there's some really easy parallel swaps. There's a lot of things that if this were a food that were a high iodine thing, there's a lot of versions of something just about like that or just like that, that's just lower in iodine
0: mm and so let's talk about say yogurt for example. so a dairy-based yogurt would be much higher in iodine than a coconut based yogurt but then the coconut based yogurt is much higher in fat than the dairy-based yogurt often and sometimes someone's needing to balance their macros for whatever reason. like things can get really confusing for people and I think that's where um, people get disheartened by uh, health um, and and improving their health because, they don't know which, which kind of thing is worse for them personally and it can be very expensive for someone to do that investigating led by a practitioner. We've just got to be honest that that's not available to everybody. Uh, so in making those decisions um, and, and looking at things, uh, how do you help your patients eliminate confusion and, and find what's going to work best for them and how to prioritise?
1: Yeah, I encourage people really just looking at what their big sources are and then looking at some of the substitutes and getting a couple different versions, finds one that works best for them. And there can be global considerations about, you mentioned a very, very astute point about just the fact that you could change your macros, for example. Um, And I do think a lot about the importance of them and their balance. There's quite a bit of data about that being important for thyroid function. So I did my best to work some of those things into the recipes, into the meal plans. But they would still come away with a healthy balance of good proteins, um, healthy fats, appropriate healthy carbohydrates, because there are some ways that one could make changes like that and come up short. Also dairy and just the calcium the mineral balance. So I've actually worked with a friend who's a registered dietitian and we sat through and said, hey, if there's these things you're avoiding, what can we do to make sure that we're not creating any gaps or missing anything?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so what does a day on a plate look like for a, 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 an iodine balanced thyroid protective diet?
1: You know, the cool thing is it probably looks a lot like a day on the plate for you right now. You know, some people are vegan or they're AIP or they're gluten-free or they're just general healthy omnivores and you can do all that stuff. You know, it's basically, here's the green light foods. So select the types of foods, types of categories you do. I do coax people to try to expand the food categories they consume if they can. There's some data about a variety of plant food categories being a good thing for thyroid autoimmunity. So I encourage people to have expand the boundaries and the extent to which they are able to. But, but really, it's, it's not going to be too radically different. And a lot of folks that have already done some things, like they've tried some of these diets, they probably cut out a lot of the big sources already. So it's often not, not too many more changes.
0: Mm. So it's a unifying diet that means that anyone on any kind of protocol for either personal preference or belief can still get you on know, board.
1: You know, and something that always created cognitive dissonance for me, it, it hurt my head, was all the times I hear someone say, I went gluten-free, it helped my thyroid, or I went AIP, it helped my thyroid, or I went vegan, it helped my thyroid. I'm like, well, wait a minute, these are contradictory. So that, that bothers, how, how, that, how does that work? And then I scour the research to see, you know, does gluten really have some unique effect on the thyroid? The data doesn't support that. So, or these other things. And, and yet I I didn't I did not discount people's experience. And so it was really liberating to realize that most of these changes ended up cutting out a lot of iodine. That any one of those steps, you know, if someone's vegan, they're cutting out seafood and eggs and dairy and oftentimes a lot of processed foods. If someone's AIP, they've cut out that and a whole lot more, you know. And if, if someone's gluten-free, they've cut out the processed grains. So all those are different ways for lowering the iodine quite a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so how do we look at, like if we look at Indigenous populations, the work of Western A. Price that he did in the 30s, noticing so many um, people were so healthy in um, places where they weren't processed foods, um, some of those populations ate a shed ton of seafood or lots and lots of dairy. So where, where do you, how do you feel that that sits with the conversation of iodine balance?
1: So quite a bit of talk about that, and in terms of human genetic diversity. Um, Dairy before iodine as a sanitizer, as an additive, really wasn't a source of iodine. Uh, As far as seafood, what we found is that human populations were in, as far as, there's a couple of main different types of iodine mechanisms, iodine uptake mechanisms. So we think that humans that evolved in coastal areas had good mechanisms for tolerating a lot of iodine and a lot of occasional iodine excess. However, the sacrifice was, they weren't the ones who could scour every last speck of iodine when it were low. Now, the other main group of humans was much more inland, and some inland areas had very poor iodine soil. And some areas were so extreme that no one, all who were there had problems, where there was areas of villages of Cretans in the deep Alps, for example. Uh, but. Most areas could still get by and we think that they had better mechanisms of scavenging every speck. They could get by on lower amounts. However, the trade-off is those who could do that, they cannot tolerate the excess because they're always pulling it in so hard that excess just slams their thyroid and harms it. So right. They couldn't, they couldn't have done well quickly. Yeah. And over the years now, we're all quite mixed. We're all, we're all mutts in a lot of I was of just areas.
0: about to say, so our <laughs> evolutionary biology... Of, pl- like, from based on place, yeah, uh, we many of us are not in our place anymore, and so our biology kind of hasn't caught up to the new well, ways a of a lot eating of us.
1: A lot of us have those inland traits, mm. a lot of us have those traits that do well on low iodine environments, mm-hmm. and now in the modern world, with these occasional high fluxes of iodine, we cannot do well with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting, uh, so interesting, especially. Uh, It's such a great way to illustrate why a a perfectly fine whole food such as dairy uh, in the olden days is not what it is today because of the way it's processed and produced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So unless your grandma with the can of raw milk coming out from the (laughs) cow in the paddock, um, maybe best to cut that back. Um, Really fascinating. It's, It's very interesting and it helps... I think people realize that you can't just go with a um health advice from the 1930s as oh gosh well that just makes so much more sense because you then have to look at processing which has such a huge place in modern world food and logistics I, i use the analogy of steps a lot i see this beautiful
1: staircase behind you and there's there's a lot of things where if you take one or two steps It can make sense you can have simple ideas if you need iodine you must need more iodine but when you take 10 12 steps you get a whole different view on things and sometimes what you saw in those first few steps it seems so logical it might be exactly backward so so yeah you're right it takes a few more steps a little more depth to get that that fuller picture
0: yeah i think that should really be the word of 2021 more depth where could you get more depth on this? How could you get a deeper understanding of the historical context as well as a present-day context? And uh, and I think we will do much better in um, the medical and sociological areas. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, Couldn't we, really, agree more. we really need that depth. I'm, I'm making it the theme word for us this year as the low-tox community. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, in terms of... Um, patient stories. You must have so many and you share some really beautiful, powerful uh, stories in the book. Um, Is there one that you might like to share with us now about how someone came to be um, working under your care? Uh, You were testing the iodine balance uh, theory as you were starting to put together your own research for the book and how it might have changed their lives.
1: You know, just, uh, just yesterday, someone we shot on social media with a story, and this was a caller, caller Maria, but she was on treatment for Graves disease, for overactive thyroid, and she was on a pretty high dose of a medication called methimazole, and it was not working well for her. It was the, the tough thing is that when someone's on methimazole, they can have dramatic, severe immunosuppression, and it, it's not common, but when it happens, it's a really big deal. Uh, and so what happens is when someone's on the medication, they, they need to have a stat emergency room evaluation whenever they get like a sore throat. So like the most minor symptoms, they've got to be checked out right away to make sure that it's not neutropenia, basically a lack of neutrophil formation. And so she was struggling with that. Uh, she was getting side effects from it and it was just hardly working. She was needing high doses and her thyroid levels were still going up. And she heard about the, the, the new book. She started on that just a few weeks ago. And within her first, her first week, the cool thing is she wanted to be hypothyroid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Usual thing, And so suddenly being on the medicine was way more than she needed. Uh-huh. She, it was hilarious because she was rejoicing about being exhausted and about her heart rate <laughs> slowing down.
0: <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. I can and imagine. And so her
1: doctor tested her and saw that sure enough, now for the first time, she was just plummeting. And so she'll likely need just a tiny fraction of that, if anything. But that's, that was just one recent example. So yeah, we see Graves' disease. You know, they still, people still need treatment when, they, when the thyroid wants to be overactive, but once it stabilizes, it can reset itself 80, 90% of the time in the course of 18 to 24 months. So Graves' disease can also get better. And it's just, it's just awesome to see that when people are struggling and nothing else is working.
0: Amazing. And so in terms of actually starting to look at the tables in your book, the traffic light system, start to focus their 80-20 on the areas of um, lower dose iodine through the, the diet.
1: Yeah, if I can. So I encourage those that wish to improve the third function, mm. just do green light foods. It's mm. that easy. You know, yeah. Do the foods you like, do green light foods. Once you've got to where you want to be, or if you just want to keep your thyroid healthy, do the green light foods and you can throw in up to two servings of the yellow light foods per day. No mm. problem. So mm. that, That's the whole complexity of it.
0: If you had to take two of your green light foods onto a desert Island for the rest of your life, what would oh they be?
1: <laughs> huh? So I've got a lot of Celtic ancestry uh-huh. yeah, and I am pretty fond of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> so they would get one of the two spots pretty easily. There's, <laughs> There's a, there's a dark joke. A lot of my ancestors came to America because of the potato famine. So mm-hmm. I can tell the jokes I'm Irish, but this is so horrible. My son told me this. Do you know how many potatoes it takes to kill an Irishman? Oh, God, no.
0: Um, Zero. Oh. <laughs> That's terrible. I see he's in training for his dad joke, honor's uh, one day. <laughs> no, so potatoes would be one of those. Number, number two,
1: shoot, this is going to be tricky. I'd want something that's denser in protein huh yeah i might might have to do some poultry i don't know i'd want some greens too two foods heck that's okay tricky. i'll give you three i'll give you three okay that if it's three if it's if it, i'm stuck with 3 got gonna balance our macros and micronutrients so here. i'd be tempted to do seafood but the difficulty is that a lot of those end up getting to be too much if i had a lot of choices i'd probably if i had all choices available no if all choices given the time for me to think about this, it's going to be potatoes, squid, and spinach are mm-hmm. going to be my three.
0: Yeah. Okay. Potatoes, squid, spinach. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll meet you in the South of Greece and we'll, we'll <laughs> that diet. That's there you go. Mediterranean. You can some garlic and that can be
1: really good. <laughs> yeah, we
0: can do that. Great. Uh, and squid is actually the best climate change seafood because of thank the you. very short life cycle. So it's a very yeah, you, fast think replenishing you know source. I think you know that better than
1: I do, but my impression was that it was a sustainable food. So it I, is. I thought that. Yes. Good, thank
0: you for confirming that. Mm, you're welcome. Uh, and so... People obviously still want to supplement, right? And they want to look after, make sure they're getting the nutrients. A lot of us live in, like in Australia, our zinc levels in our soil is absolutely terrible, um, for example. Uh, And so a a multivitamin and supportive kind of um, uh, nutritional product is often, you know, great in the modern world. Uh, It helps us detoxify a bit better uh, against all the modern assaults as well. And I see that you have a wonderful thyroid supplement that is very nourishing and and quite diverse in the nutrients that are in there. Can I ask you, um, given we know that the iodine levels are often incorrect on supplement bottles and perhaps something we now want to avoid, they're often in a lot of multi-minerals, multivitamins um, and so it can be really hard to get it out there, but still get all the other things now, you know, lucky you guys, if you're, uh, you know, in the U S or Canada and you have access to Dr. C's, uh, wonderful, um, thyroid blend, but what are the rest of us going to do? <laughs> Cause it's you know, hard, a, couple of right? thoughts, mm. a couple
1: of thoughts that way. So, so yeah, I wish there were more iodine free multis. We're pushing for that. I'd like that was available in more parts of the world. Uh, one option people can do is look at multi-minerals. And then if you can do a multi-mineral, they often will cover many of the trace minerals. And sometimes you need like a calcium, magnesium, maybe a B-complex. And, and that covers a lot of the bases, perhaps some C and D. But that's, that's, that's probably the simplest thing in lieu of an overall low iodine multi. Uh, one more thing to throw out, you've got a good audience. Uh, I'm very adamant about not using pyridoxine hydrochloride in mm-hmm. my supplement. That's okay. the
0: synthetic B6, right?
1: Synthetic B6. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks get neurotoxic from B6 pretty easily, especially those prone to thyroid disease.
0: But not P5P?
1: Correct. Not a problem for pyridoxal 5-phosphate.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Thank God I take P5P. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Good to know. Because often I see in supplements and I avoid them like the plague because um, I, I just feel so good when I take a P5P And uh, my naturopath said, you just got to stay away from the synthetic stuff. Just your body is not good at processing it. And there's research to suggest uh, it's not a great idea, Um, but often supplements will put both in there. What is up with that? Why don't we just get the good stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Can't
1: answer that one. I think it's, I think it's a matter of the same reason I think they put in massive amounts of B vitamins, like seems like there's more and consumers seem to like respond to that. I'm not sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And so it really is just a matter of starting to get a better awareness about those ingredient lists on supplements and um, trying to avoid iodine completely, would you say, on a, in yep, a supplement no. form? Okay.
1: Well, the thing is, you'll never see less than 75 micrograms on the label, and we know that it might have a couple times down. And so if the day's window is up to 200, and you've already got 75, maybe more, there's always going to be some in the diet. You know, even a diet that's avoiding high iodine foods will still have at least 50 or maybe 100 micrograms. So it's, it's tough to get low when there's some coming in through supplements.
0: Mm. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so to wrap up, I obviously want to uh, point everybody towards your book. That's available internationally, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you are so generous with your Instagram lives, Facebook lives. You do webinars quite often. You also run your metabolism reset diet. Uh, is there anything that you would love to share to kind of close off our chat today that would help that you feel like you, you just wish more people knew? I mean, I know we've talked about a lot of that today, but something that, that helps us all feel like, okay, well, that is what I will focus on this week then.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the main thing I would encourage is just the idea that, you know, what what you teach people is that your health is in your hands. You know, you you can get better. Your choices matter. And don't ever assume that you're stuck with symptoms. Even if you were told that you're stuck with symptoms, don't assume that. And something that we've, we've just started, which I'm really excited about this, I've been very frustrated about the fact that a lot of things are blocked by national barriers and that we can't do as much globally. So, I have my team that does medical thyroid care, my doctors that that I manage, I've started doing thyroid second opinions. So I, I don't do these as medical care, they're, they're consults. And I give summaries you can use your, with your doctor and they're written for your doctor as well, but anyone, anywhere in the world can schedule time with me and talk through their situation in person and Amazing. They're, they're a blast. So yeah, That's thyroid, thyroidopinion.com and and mm-hmm. happy to talk in person and give someone a good plan.
0: And you have your trained doctors under you that can be scheduled for those second opinions as well? That's me. <laughs> oh, wow. It is. That's just me. You, That's, yourself, yeah. and I. That is huge, Alan. Like how <laughs> how many hours a week do you consecrate to that? Just a day a week. Okay.
1: So. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Yeah, but they're, they're a lot of fun. I enjoy that. It's fun to really, it's almost like an unfair advantage when I can talk to someone about, and I don't have to, I don't have to just say, you know, try 50 things, read all these books, I can say, Oh, no, you just need that. This is the issue there. It's it's Mm. a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, (laughs) brilliant. And what an amazing way to stay in touch with people on the ground. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Something that often when people go more into the research and authorship, you can sometimes just forget that we're doing this for real people, right? Yeah, Mm. it's great to have
1: that connection. I really enjoy it.
0: Well, we certainly appreciate the work you do. I feel that you are a calm, super smart and steady voice in the medical <laughs> uh, sphere and I, I thank you for your work. Um, I know us low-toxers appreciate it. I'm looking forward to chatting with um, our club members. Uh, we're going to talk about your book uh, this week and um and, and see how people are going and what people are thinking and what they might be adjusting in their own lives to give this a crack and balance. You guys get
1: a bunch of questions, come up for those along to me. I'll be happy to help out.
0: Oh, amazing. We will do. Yeah. We might do a little Q and A in there. Um, brilliant. Okay. Well, I'll, we'll make it a focus then. How fantastic. Um, thank you, Alan. I'm sure this won't be the last time we speak. I'll certainly see you for chats on Instagram in the meantime and uh, have a beautiful evening. And thanks again for today.
1: Thanks so much. Take care, Alex. Thanks for helping get the word out.
0: You're welcome. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at lowtoxlife, or one word, or my personal Instagram, uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Low Life. Uh, And of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro, and about 25 pounds. You get a stack of club member perks. And the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So, check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab, and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.